Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Hasak Chang, Hans Rousing Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge. His new book, Realism for Realistic People, A New Pragmatist Philosophy of Science, is just out from Cambridge University Press. For a certain kind of standard realist, science aims at getting the absolute truth about the universe. For Chang, this view is unrealistic because we have no way of judging whether we are getting at that truth. In his new book, Chang argues that we should understand scientific inquiry and its epistemic fruits in terms of what we do to acquire, justify, and use scientific knowledge. Drawing on Dewey and other pragmatists, plus a neo-Kantian view of phenomena, Chang affirms the basic realistic, realist commitment to a mind-independent world, but only in the sense that the world is mind-framed by our concepts, not mind-controlled. The aim of science, however, is operationally coherent active knowledge, not description of some inaccessible reality. Let's turn to the interview. Uh, hello, Hasak Chang. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thank you for having me. I'm really, uh, really looking forward to talking about your new book, Realism for Real People. Um, Before we get to the contents of the book itself, um, uh, it's helpful to have a little bit of background, both about you and about the book, right? So could you tell us a bit about yourself as a philosopher and then how this book came about? Yeah, sure. Something I should say about my work in general is that it has been always on the boundary between the philosophy of science and the history of science. And I had come from doing physics as an undergraduate and got into philosophy because, basically because physics wasn't what I thought it would be. Um, Whenever I would ask about something I was really excited about, my physics professor would tell me, well, that's a philosophical question, meaning don't ask such things, just do your problems. Maybe when you grow up and become a real physicist, you could ask about the meaning of things, but not yet. And I didn't want to wait. And I wasn't that interested in just following science in that way, which is kind of what Tom Kuhn called normal science, right? Anyway, so I went on to graduate school in philosophy, but I was taught by people like Peter Gallison, um, Nancy Cartwright and others who really took the history of science seriously. So I've always um, been interested in figuring out how we came to have this thing that we call scientific knowledge. And then when I got into my PhD thesis that was on the philosophy of quantum mechanics, but again, I was looking at a lot of the the history of how quantum mechanics came to be, and then realized uh, most of philosophy of quantum mechanics wasn't done in that vein. So I ended up, uh, to cut a long story short, going back to much earlier science. So my first book, the one called Inventing Temperature, was about how people learn to make thermometers, measure temperature, figure out what temperature meant. My second book was called Is Water H2O? That was literally the history of how people came to believe that piece of knowledge, which we absolutely take for granted today, and and we just teach children to repeat that. Water is H2O. Don't ask why it is. I wanted to know why and how scientists came to know such a thing. 
So my work has always been about the history, the actual practice of the learning of scientific knowledge. Um, And in doing that sort of work, I've had this kind of frustration building up with standard philosophy of science done in the mode of analytic philosophy, um, which really seemed to go from the idea that knowledge is a set of correct propositions that we believe and with very little attention paid to how we come about knowing such things and even how we actually test such propositions. What do we in fact do when we make uh, tests of theories, when we create standards by which we judge scientific knowledge and so on? So how I came to write this book is um, after years of working in that history and philosophy of science mode of working, I really felt the need to write down in a rather abstract philosophical way how we might conceive knowledge in a way that is really um, conducive to thinking about the nature of scientific practice. So let let me stop there and... and, uh, See where you want to lead off from uh, that. No, you can um, please go ahead. Well, so to add just one other point. Um, so in my previous books, I've always tried to combine the history and the philosophy. So um, each of those two books I mentioned um, has a very long historical study Um, and then some philosophical reflections arising from that experience of puzzling out the history of science. Um, This time I also began in that mode, and in fact it was to be a book about the history of batteries, which I may tell you (laughs) more about um, later on. But in this case, so, so the philosophical lesson that was beginning to emerge from that study was all about uh, what you might call practical knowledge, what I in this book call active knowledge, which is to say knowledge seen as a kind of ability, right? Not, not just as the possession of information, but knowing how to do things. And then I started looking at the tradition of pragmatism because that seemed to be the best um, existing philosophical tradition that that was conducive to thinking about practices in general and knowledge as ability. And then I realized this philosophical story is now getting just too big and I needed to let it live its own life. So um, quite reluctantly at first, I I split this book into two. Um, The historical one's not done yet, actually. uh, So I need to go back and finish that. But the philosophical, more abstract aspect, which is a pragmatist view on the nature of knowledge, um, a reworking of philosophy of science in that vein. Um, that's what this book um, is. Okay. Well, that's, that's very helpful. Um, so the, the title is, you know, Realism for Real People. Um, it's uh, Realism for Realistic People. Actually. Realistic yes. People. Sorry. Um, that's what I mean. Uh, yeah. Real, real so, as well, but <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Um, so, so first of all, let's, uh, by contrast, maybe, uh, what is the, um, the, you know, that kind of implies that uh, there, there's another realism that is somehow yes. either for unrealistic people <laughs> or, or just unrealistic, yeah, period. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what, what is the, what is your, your kind of main opponent or the, the, the type of idea that, that you're, 
arguing against from in, and then we'll get into that. And then, and who are the, you know, who are the re, the, the unrealistic people, you know, or, or, or what are the people that that sort of realism is, you know, sort of aiming at that you want to mm-hmm. oppose? Yeah. So what I think of as unrealistic realism is what goes by the name of scientific realism um, in the standard philosophy of science literature. So it's the idea that science is getting at something like the absolute truth about the universe, right? And, you know, most people say, yeah, yeah, uh, we, we probably don't have it yet, but at least we are approaching that absolute truth. And what's unrealistic about it particularly is that we don't really have any way of judging whether we are getting at the absolute truth, right? So that, that's, the, uh, that's one of the key disputes concerning scientific realism. So on the one hand, the scientific realist will say, well, the incredible success of science tells us that we must be getting at the real truth about the world in capitals or reality with a capital R, a metaphysical kind of reality. And then the anti-realists on the other side tend to say, but no, we have empirical success and that's all it is. It's an illegitimate inference to go from empirical success to any kind of absolute truth. So that, that's, as you know, the standard argument. And I think there's something important get, that gets lost in that dispute, which is that, you know, people out there, even the general public, people want the truth. People want to be able to say, yes, science is giving us something that we should call truth. And certain other people like conspiracy theorists and others, they don't give us the truth. But the consequence of having the standard kind of so-called scientific realism is that, well, we, we have to admit that even science doesn't give us the truth, if what we mean by the truth is some sort of uh, direct access to platonic reality, right? So uh, this is why I look to pragmatism to give us a more realistic sense of truth and even reality. So that's why I go back to thinkers like William James, John Dewey, C.S. Peirce, um, who had a more realistic sense of truth, right? Which is about actually being able to get on in the world. It's not about accessing the inaccessible. Okay. So, um, I mean, you've, uh, and there's a lot of different directions to go in, but um, so, uh, well, you mentioned active knowledge, Um and you contrast that uh, in in some way with uh, the idea that knowledge is, you know, these, you know, set of sentences or, or propositions that, you know, in some sense correspond to uh, correspond to reality. This was, um, um, how is active knowledge different? Right, you're not denying that there is propositional knowledge. It's it's not that. It's it, it's it's you know it's me- meant to be compatible, but it's focusing on something else. You know that comes from the pragmatist tradition. So could you could you say a bit about active knowledge and what um, what it means for scientists to aim at active knowledge and and how active knowledge. Um, uh, you know, the how the fruits of active knowledge, you know, can be uh, normatively assessed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, first of all, I'm not, as you, as you point out, I'm not 
of course, denying that there is such a thing as propositional knowledge. Um, what I'm saying with this idea of active knowledge is that we need to really go beyond propositional knowledge and look more broadly because um, was the, the kind of knowing that's involved in doing science as well as everyday life is much more than just possessing pieces of information. So if you're a scientist, you want to know how to do things, everything from knowing how to synthesize certain chemicals to knowing how to solve mathematical equations. So in this regard, I, I draw partly from the operationalist philosophy of Percy Bridgman, who said we should analyze in terms of doings rather than things, because that takes us further. And in a similar way, I'm saying we need to analyze um, our inquiry, our knowledge in terms of what we do when we acquire, justify, and use knowledge, rather than just um, possessing in a passive kind of way the correct propositions. And propositional knowledge I think also takes its full significance only in the context of the doings that that we engage in, right? So people like Gilbert Ryle pointed out that, well, first of all, the acquisition of language itself is embedded in the activities of life, right? And the use of language also only happens in the context of doings. So in Ryle's term, knowing how to do things was uh, prior to knowing that such and such is the case. Okay. Um, So uh, let's, uh, let me ask about reality then. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, absolute reality, uh, and, um, you know, the idea, at least, at least in, in, in a kind of standard form of realism, uh, we are somehow getting direct access to this platonic absolute reality. And that's, that's entirely unrealistic. Um, you're not denying that uh, that reality. I'm not, you know, I don't know if I should put that in scare quotes or not, but uh, uh, that this idea, you're not denying the idea of a, a mind independent uh, world or, or, or reality, but you make a very uh, important distinction uh, that that plays a kind of a central role, I think, throughout the book uh, between uh, the idea of mind independence as mind control and the idea of mind independence in terms of mind framing. Um, and uh, so, I, so maybe you could say a bit about that distinction, which is which seems to be pretty crucial to the mm-hmm. project. Yeah. So thank you for um, bringing that up, because it is indeed quite central. So the notion of mind independence is what standard realists always fall back on, right? They say, if you're not a realist, you're you're denying that there is mind-independent reality, and how could you? Does that mean you just think the world is whatever you feel like? it should be or whatever you think it is. And it's in order to prevent um, that slide which I, uh, that, that, that I put in this distinction. So what I think we can all agree on is that reality doesn't do what we please. So that, that's the idea that uh, on the side of mind control, right? that reality is not controlled by our mind. I mean, very few things are, right? It's like some parts of my body, 
hopefully, but <laughs> most reality isn't. And even parts of my body uh, are only controlled by my mind in the way they move, but not in the way they are shaped or in the way they get diseased and healthy and so on. So let's all accept that, yes, there is reality that is not mind controlled. But there's a very, very different thing from saying that there is reality that is not mind framed, by which I mean that um, whatever we can think about, theorize about, talk about at all, is going to be mind framed in the sense that it is expressed in terms of concepts that are in our minds, that are made by our minds, used by our minds. So that's, uh, in a remote way, that's a Kantian insight that I'm helping myself to, right? There, there can be no cognition, Kant said, right, without framing things in terms of the fundamental conceptions of our minds. Um, I don't go fully Kantian. I, I'm neo-Kantian in the sense that I think those conceptual categories can change and can develop. They're not universal and eternal, as Kant would have held. But the more general point, which I think remains valid from Kant, is that nothing we can talk, think, and argue about uh, is going to be not framed in conceptual terms. So now, yeah, at this point, we will get a pushback from the metaphysical realist saying, right, but that still doesn't mean that there isn't this noumenal world in Kantian terms, which exists independently of our mind framing. And at that point, there are two things to say. One is, well, you can believe that if you like. That's like believing in God. But I have nothing intelligible to say about such reality. So I don't think that can be the subject of sensible philosophical discussion. The other thing is what I call the fallacy of prefiguration. And this is something that Dewey pointed out many times under different names. Um, the fallacy here that many metaphysical realists commit is to think that that noumenal reality is still framed in terms of recognizable concepts. So I have um, a good colleague who really pushed me on this point, and he said, but surely you admit there are cockroaches in the world, mind independently. And I said, no, uh, cockroaches are mind-framed things. Why do we think that the ultimate noumenal world contains anything like cockroaches, which are things that are framed in human concepts? But the point about my realism is this. The point is that there are, yes, many things that are real, and I'll come to uh, what that means in a moment, but many things that are real that are mind-framed, of course. And that covers everything from cockroaches to electrons. These things are all real, as we've learned from uh, our daily experience or scientific investigations. But they are all mind-framed. So all real entities are mind-framed and they are not mind-controlled. That, that's how I try to sum up the basic ontology. Now, I, I should probably come briefly to then what I mean by something being real. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's uh, a whole chapter because... in the book, but let me... Yeah. Right, right. So let, let me just let me just push, you know, along with your your colleague, sort of. <laughs> um, so you're not a skeptic. I mean, skepticism is not. You know, I didn't see any. You know, any hint that that's what's driving you is skepticism, right? 
Um, so, and this is a form of realism uh, because you you're accepting that there is this you know a, a world that we we perceive even if we don't perceive it directly. Um, but I guess the pushback, and this is kind of following up on the cockroach issue. Um, why should we, if we're, if we agree, we're not skeptics about the existence of an external world, why should we somehow be skeptical about the, you know, the, the things that populate that world, even if there our access to them is indirect? Mm, okay. So, uh, several things to say about that but let me first of all affirm that i'm not a skeptic i mean i am like anybody skeptical about specific things but i'm not a general skeptic i'm also not a positivist or um, a van frassen type constructive empiricist in that i don't think there is this um sharp, meaningful line between the observable and the unobservable. I'm not talking about the kind of picture in which, yes, there are these things and uh, what we only have indirect access to, we should be skeptic, skeptics about. No, I, I think, uh, as I mentioned, what I consider as real entities include all the well-established unobservable entities of modern science, like electrons, cells, DNA, um, all of those things, right? So I'm not a skeptic. Um, Where, again, I I think uh, realists, the so-called scientific realists, go wrong is by saying that things like electrons are pieces of the platonic furniture, right? That they are bits in the noumenal world. Uh, Again, I I think we should get away altogether from talking about the noumenal world. I think we should say that there are real things, whether they be cockroaches or electrons, and we learn about them in the same kind of way that we learn about anything else. And I think that that's part of the lesson from classical pragmatism, which saw this continuity between everyday uh, inquiry and scientific investigations. Um, Okay, but then... I suppose, and then I'll, and then I do want to, I want to discuss what you, you know, your definitions or redefinitions of, of reality, truth, and so forth, because that's a very important part of the book. Um, um, so if, I guess, I guess here, I'll just put it simply, if we, if, if we, if we go wrong about, you know, electrons, uh, or, or if we go wrong, if 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 sort of more standard realists or or, or realists of another type um, that is not your type um, uh, think that um, that electrons exist, uh, well. I'm not sure how to put the how to put the point. If what is oh, maybe let me put it this way: What is it that uh, that some sort of commitment commitment to platonic furniture is supposed to mean? Um, I mean, given that you know we're agreeing in that there's an external world um, uh, with stuff in it. Um, what what about that belief uh, kind of puts you in the realm of platonic furniture? Um, I, what I'm trying to say is that the good 
proper realist attitude to take is to say that yes, there are electrons, there are the tables and chairs, cats and dogs, there are thunderstorms, there are northern lights, there are all kinds of things that we recognize as real. And that's all we need to say, right? Uh-huh. So there is no okay. need to talk about an inaccessible kind of reality and whether we have got the picture of that correctly. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and I would so flip we, the question yeah. and, and ask the metaphysical realist, um, first of all, what is meant? What do you mean by external reality? External to what? And the pragmatist question to ask would be, what, what do we gain from thinking in that way? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a good way to put it. Um, so what do we gain by thinking of, you know, our talk of, you know, what's real and what you call realities and, you know, realness? Um, what, what do we gain then by thinking about these concepts uh, in terms of your the pragmatist view that you propose? Yeah, so that, that I think is the uh, key question to ask, I mean, quite generally, right, when we're doing philosophy. And that's sort of a meta-pragmatist perspective on philosophy itself, right? Um why do we want to have these concepts and what do we get from employing them? So there I, I'm also um, quite fond of what people these days call conceptual engineering, right? So let, let's take that notion of reality and start by asking what, um, how does that concept function in ordinary life first of all right why why does our language have a word like real and what what do normal people mean when they say something is real something is not real so when my parents tell me oh ghosts aren't real don't worry at night right what do they mean? They're not talking about some ultimate absolute reality that they have access to, which I don't because I'm only four years old or whatever. Um, they're telling me something quite mundane, right? Like um, if you try to grab hold of this ghost, you won't be able to do it. If you try to take a picture of one, you won't be able to do it. If you want to really carefully observe how the ghost knocks things off the shelf, you won't be able to do it. In other words, all the things you imagine that uh, would have empirical consequences, um, they're not true. They, They don't happen. So that's the kind of thing we mean by something being real in everyday life. And I think that's really all we mean by something being real in the scientific context as well. So the way I put it um, in the book in a more abstract way is that an entity is real to the extent um, one can, there are that to the extent that there are operationally coherent activities one can carry out by means of the alleged entity, right? And then I have to explain what operationally coherent means, but uh, that that's the general idea. Okay. Um, yeah. So. Could you explain operational coherence? Right. <laughs> I mean, so this goes back to an earlier question you asked near the start, which I neglected to answer, so I'm glad it's coming back. So um, you're asking how we judge the quality of 
what I call active knowledge, right? And that comes down to how do we judge the quality of an activity we carry out? And that's a much more complex question than how do we judge the quality of propositional knowledge, right? Because there you, you have a ready answer. One is the proposition true. <laughs> that's the fundamental question. And then you might ask about justification. But if you ask, right, how good is this activity we carry out? Uh, there isn't going to be a very straightforward answer that corresponds to um, truth as a property of a proposition. So that's where, um, that's the context in which I come up with this idea of operational coherence. So I say that an activity is operationally coherent if it's well designed to meet its aim. So it's a matter of how all the different aspects of what we do fit nicely together so as to be conducive to the um, achievement of the aim, aim of the activity, that is. So to take a very simple example, which I use in the book, um, you might think of an activity of lighting matches, right? In order to do that well, you have to know exactly how to hold the box, exactly how to pick up that matchstick and how to strike it against that um, rough side of the matchbox. You have to know when to stop that movement and you have to know um, and all the different coordinations of movements and how to adapt those movements according to the circumstances. Is the wind blowing? How is the temperature? Is it raining? Whatever. So it's the coordination of all of those things that go into the design of an activity. And so that's the simple end. And then the most complex example I give is the global positioning system, right? Where you have to really do this coordination on a grand scale involving lots of satellites, um, electromagnetic signals that bounce off from well, that are sent from the signals, uh, satellites bouncing off the locations on Earth, and you have these atomic clocks taking exact timings of these signals being sent and received, and they have to be triangulated between different satellites, and the atomic clocks have to be corrected by general and special relativity, and they have to be in the first place run by quantum mechanics, and the satellites have to be flown with Newtonian mechanics. Everything material and theoretical and operational procedural have to be coordinated to this amazing degree. So that's an um, illustration of operational coherence um, in a complex advanced case. Uh, in a word I towards, um, I sum it up as aim-oriented coordination. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then and then you also redefine truth, right? So you, you're rejecting the idea that somehow our concepts correspond, like you know the concept of you know electron or cockroach or cat. Uh, somehow correspond to some uh, aspect of the external world. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so um, there, there are two, two steps to this, uh, and don't let me forget to come back to the second one. But the first step is, yes, I, I am rejecting the standard correspondence theory of truth, which says that truth is the correspondence between our propositions and the actual state of this inaccessible reality, right? And no, as Putnam once said, the correspondence theory is not wrong. It is empty. Uh, to the to the extent that we have no idea how to check 
their correspondence. Uh, we have, if, if the platonic reality is inaccessible, then how can we ever check the correspondence? So it becomes a, a completely um, unrealistic idea of knowledge, right? So what I'm trying to do with the notion of truth as with reality is also to ask, right, well, what do we mean when we say in ordinary life that something is true or something is not true? We don't mean when we say something is true that we have access, we have a direct phone line to God um, to be able to check whether what I'm saying really corresponds to the shape of that mind unframed reality, right? So what I'm trying to say is that truth is also a matter of a proposition being able to support operationally coherent activities. So, you know, if I believe that the earth is flat, there will be various consequences of it. There'll be a lot of activities that I can't coherently carry out on the basis of that belief. So that that's the basic sense of truth, uh, what I call truth by operational coherence. Uh, the, the second part that I have to add is that I'm not saying that there is not, there isn't something like correspondence. I think there is correspondence truth, but only in what I call the secondary sense. So it goes like this, right? If I say it's true that the temperature in this room is 22 degrees centigrade, well, what does the truth of that consist in? Consists in me looking at the thermometer, right? So it's based on my statement, uh, the truth of my statement about the temperature of this room is based on its correspondence to the thermometer reading, right? And that's how a lot of things work out in life as well as in science. So in that sense, yes, there, there is a truth by correspondence, but that's not correspondence to anything noumenal, right? It's correspondence to other propositions that we already accept for other reasons. So if you then trace, well, why do I believe that my thermometer tells me the correct temperature? And you have to dig into the details of that. Uh, so my contention is that when we do this kind of tracing of grounds, we arrive at um, what I call truth by operational coherence. So it's a bit like, you know, Wittgenstein's hinge propositions. Why do we believe that, you know, the earth is more than 30 years old? Why do I go with here's a hand? Well, it's because I can do operationally coherent things on the basis of such beliefs, not because I have checked with noumenal reality that these things are true. Okay. Um, well, this is, uh, so, I mean, you've talked about, you know, the inaccessible, you know, platonic or empirically inaccessible platonic reality. And then of course, a sort of standard or old fashioned realist, you know, direct, you know, where you have direct access uh, and that's clearly, you know, been rejected. Um, but it, it seems like there's a this middle ground of, you know, where it's the world is indirectly accessible. Um, and I suppose what I'm trying to pin down is um, if... It, why a realist, um, uh, why we wouldn't want to have a, say, a stronger form of realism, 
where it's still indirectly, indirectly accessible, this world of, you know, cockroaches and stuff. So, you know, you're still talking about our, um, you know, we still have to conceptualize the world in, in some way. Um, uh, but there's still, there's still kind of a commitment to, yeah, but when we get things right, uh, in the, you know, again, this is more of an old, maybe an old fashioned sense of truth or old fashioned sense of reality, but not the inaccessible platonic kind of way. Um, why is that too much realism for you? I mean, that's, that's the sense. My sense is that that is too much of a realism for you. I'm, I don't think so, actually. Right. So the, this question of directness is tricky. Yeah. So, yeah, some things are very directly accessible to our ways of knowing. Other things are less directly accessible. So I think there's certainly uh, that directness as a matter of degree, right? So, yes, um, I my thermometer is much more directly accessible to me than the molecules that presumably bounce off each other and eventually reaching my thermometer and its readings. But all of these things, everything from my thermometer that I can grab and handle down to the molecules, they're all in the Kantian phenomenal world. Right. So just just because our knowledge of the molecules is, yes, more indirect, I don't think we should be saying they are in some other realm of reality. Uh, they're, they're simply, yeah, it takes more work to get at them. Uh, we can't sense them directly and so on. But that doesn't make them a different metaphysical kind of thing, right? So I think there we, we can be realist about all the different kinds of entities on that spectrum of directness, uh, according to the criterion that I um, laid out earlier about um, whether we can do operationally coherent things with them. Um, but I think that that's something we can all agree on, right? And then to add some other presumed realm of ontology, I, I just don't think that's necessary. So, so in, in okay, that yeah. sense, you know, what I my attitude is quite similar in that sense to what Arthur Fine called natural ontological attitude, right? Uh huh. Okay, you might want to elaborate that a bit. So Fine's argument was that um, the traditional realism and realism debate was really idle, right? That we all should agree that the well-confirmed theories of science are true, the well-established entities occurring in scientific theories are real in the same kind of way as the ideas and entities that we have in our conceptions, in, in our everyday conceptions are true and real. And that he called the natural ontological attitude, right? That we should apply equally to um, science and everyday life. And then he thought what is traditionally called philosophical or rather scientific realism or anti-realism just added unnecessary um, metaphysical structures or perhaps... um, methodological strictures on top of the natural ontological attitude and that was really unnecessary and created a fruitless debate. Okay. Um, so let me, there was a, one of the questions that, that I, that, you know, occurred to me as I was reading was, you know, again, based on the idea that this is, you know, a realism for, for realistic 
people. Um, and I, I did sort of wonder uh, if the realistic people that you have in, have in mind would include, say, the folk or, or non-scientists, um, because... Um, it it could be that 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 they are uh, realist in a sense that you would reject, um, in which case your like your very nice pragmatist conceptions would not be for them. So who are the realistic people that you you that are your you sort of target people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I guess I'm an optimist here. I, I think most people, including the public, um, are realistic in this way. I think some of them are not, certainly. I mean, we can, there's a big debate to be had about religious people, um, whether they can be considered realistic in my sense. And my view is that even most of the religious people are realistic when it comes to matters other than religion right when when we are you know playing sports together or doing economic transactions or um doing even politics together i think most people are realistic in the sense uh, that i mean I think most scientists are also realistic people in, in this way. Uh, there are some exceptions, clearly, um, those who really thought that they were getting at God's truth by their science. Um, that would include a range of people from Newton to Einstein. But I think most people are really not like that, even if they are theoretical scientists. So... My hope is that most people can at least become realistic in this way. And I mean, the, the, on the other side, the danger I see is um, that unrealistic expectations about science actually creates, create a backlash, right? If you put scientific knowledge on a pedestal and present it as something that gives you the absolute truth about some inaccessible reality, as soon as people find out that science doesn't really do that, then they're going to say, well, then science is not really much, uh, anything better than my opinions. And I think we are seeing a lot of that kind of um, backlash uh, in current society. Hmm. Okay. Um yeah, we kind of slide back into the inex some commitment to inaccessible reality. I and I think uh, I think most people uh, would. Well, I don't know. I, I you know haven't you know again. It's sort of like is is the real is reality in, inaccessible or is it just indirectly? accessible, like, you know, cockroaches and cats, right? Uh, I'm not talking about electrons. And it would seem to me that, you know, even if you think that, yeah, we're, we have to use our, you know, perceptual and cognitive apparatus to access the world, um, that's, you know, that's not quite getting us to, you know, reality is inaccessible. It's just getting to the idea that it is indirectly accessible, even cats and cockroaches, right? And, and but that doesn't see, I mean, do you say that, well, thinking that there's, you know, something maybe beyond what we can, you know, interact with, you know, in, in all the ways that you, you talk about, um, you know, that you've said that it's, it's not necessary. It's not necessary to think that there's anything beyond that. Um, and I suppose, you know, I'm, I'm kind of rephrasing my, my worry is just, uh, 
why exactly isn't it necessary to think that the concept of cat, you know, corresponds to cats? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not exactly, you know, I mean, that there really are, you know, there really are cats out there. Um and they're part of the new, you know, and that, and that the numinal world really does have some of these, these joints. And even if we have indirect access to them, they're not inaccessible. They're just indirectly accessible. I mean, I, I would certainly agree that there really are cats, but in your yeah, sense, in of my real. sense of real, <laughs> yeah. But um, the question is, are there? not just cats, as I understand them, but are there really cats? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And there I begin to lose the sense of what someone who's demanding that can possibly mean. So, I mean, this, I think, is, again, going back to what I call the fallacy of prefiguration. so I think it's a coherent position to say, like Kant, well, there is the noumenal reality about which we cannot express anything. Um, I think, yeah, you can say that, but it's just not very useful, I would think. Uh-huh. Now, to, to make that thought more useful, you would have to posit things like noumenal cats, and nominal dogs and electrons, everything else, which correspond to our standard notion of cats and dogs and everything else. But that, I think, is... uh, that's uh, I don't think that's a legitimate move, because what is a nominal cat? Because a cat is a mind-framed thing. A noumenal thing cannot be mind-framed. So I think that ends up in a kind of self-contradiction. Okay. Well, I think, yeah. Well, on that note, I mean, uh, I will I will leave that for people to puzzle over. Um, but um, we're almost out of time. So, so I would like to end by uh, asking what, you're you know working on now you mentioned that this originated as a as a somewhat different book about about the history of batteries which which kind of which is interesting um are you are you doing the other half as a separate book or you have you moved to something else what's, yes, so, what's on your desk at the moment <laughs> the history of batteries is still gonna be a book and it's not quite done yet i'm hoping to finish up that manuscript uh, by the end of this summer and when that's off my desk I can think about really what what I want to move on to next Um, I mean as you can imagine uh, from the book that we have been discussing there is a lot to follow up on so I I would certainly be doing some of that follow up work um, which goes in many directions. One is really to get deeper into the question of what practices really are. And this is something that I think, well, I looked for literature that I I could build on and I couldn't find it. Uh, There are sociologists who have been doing practice theory. Uh, There are philosophers of action who have been doing action theory, none of that seemed to be that useful to me. So I, I need to see what I can do um, to, to do better on that. I do need to get deeper into this notion of operational coherence, which I think I articulated well enough just for the immediate purpose of this book. But there are certainly lots of questions um, that I I would like to pursue about what exactly operational coherence means. And um, similarly with the notions of truth and reality that I um, proposed, a lot of implications that really need thinking through. And for example, you know, I, I 
I said in the book that according to my conception, truth becomes certainly not a binary. It becomes a matter of degrees and not only just that, but it, it's, it's that phrase I used in my definition of truth by operational coherence, which is to the extent that, and that really makes truth uh, a matter of quality, quality in that uh, rather nebulous sense. Um, so implications of that really need to be thought through, I think. And um, it will have to touch on logic, which I've really avoided so far. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's a lot to follow up. It's funny how that always happens. No one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with, with me and New Books and Philosophy about your new book. Oh, thank you um, for giving me the opportunity. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will 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 be interested in seeing what what you have to say um, about these these issues. Um, uh, so so thanks thanks a lot, and uh, I wish you best of luck with the other work. And I'm very curious to see the work on batteries too. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, okay, um, so goodbye for now, and thanks again. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Hasak Chang, Hans Rousing Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at Cambridge University. We've been talking about his new book, Realism for Realistic People, A New Pragmatist Philosophy of Science, which is just out from Cambridge University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.